Let me uh, invite you now to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. And today we will be looking at verses 5 through 13. As we consider the discipline of the Lord. Understanding that the writer to the book of Hebrews has just given for us a challenge to run the race, he's now going to change the metaphor, and the Bible authors often do this. In the middle of one metaphor, they'll bring another metaphor. And now, no longer seeing God, let's say, as a coach, uh, challenging us to run the race, now he sees him as a father who disciplines his children, and they are connected. And we will see how in a moment. Hear now the word of the Lord. And have you forgotten the exhortations that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate ch children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the, uh, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceable, peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that as we sit under the preaching of God's Word today, that your Spirit would prepare our hearts to receive the seed of the Word of God that has power and life in it, that is able to uh, create in us all kinds of graces, uh, able to create in us faith, which is central to the Christian experience. And we pray that this word would work in us today, that it would uh, rebuke us and correct us and train us and reassure us and uh, inspire us and motivate us and set us on fire for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, when you start talking about discipline, um, that's not a word that many people in our culture find meritorious or worthy of discussion. Uh, we don't like the word discipline. I, I remember when I was a, a young child, I did not like the term discipline or chastisement or spankings. I just didn't see any point to it all. 
in my young child mind. Of course, as you grow older, you get down the road a little bit, you see that you probably needed more than you received unless you were abused. And, of course, we don't want to talk about that today. But I remember Tom Landry, who was a coach of the Dallas Cowboys for years, and he's one of my favorite coaches of all time, and he said this about discipline. He said, discipline is getting people to do what they don't want to do so they can be what they've always wanted to be. No discipline is pleasant. But the Lord is the one who has set us apart to belong to Him. And as a good father, He will bring training and discipline into our lives. And so, in verses 5 through 6 of this text, the author actually quotes from the book of Proverbs. And those who are hearing this message originally are in a situation where they are weary, they are fatigued, they are emotionally drained, they are at the point almost of no return. They're ready to hang it up, to cash it in, to give it up, and, and to just quit. That's where they are. They're extremely discouraged. Uh, persecution is happening. Uh, everything that they could consider comfort was gone and so they're they're experiencing a weariness of soul that had led them to the point of being emotionally fatigued and it had tempted them to quit the faith and so the writer of Hebrews knowing that first points them to Jesus and his suffering saying that he persevered and endured in order that you might have life and you have not yet reached the point of resistance to the striving of shedding blood but he points not only to Jesus but he points to the father and the father's relationship and he wants us to see the things in our lives that we wish sometimes were not there have a very good reason for being there and that they're part of God's discipline of his sons and rather than just seeing uh, all that happens to us through a negative prism he wants us now to look at it in a whole new way and that takes faith that takes the Word of God to, to bear upon us and so he says have you forgotten the word of encouragement which is really a question and two things stand out in the way he addresses this particular quote from the book of Proverbs. The author places the subject of discipline in a very positive framework, a topic of encouragement or comfort. And in scripture, that word encouragement or comfort is paraklesis or parakaleo. It means one coming alongside and sitting down with and providing support. And so God is leading the reader a writer of the book of Hebrews to expound these verses of Proverbs for the purpose of providing his alongside presence to them to help them understand that how they might interpret discipline is very different than how he intends discipline it is a topic of encouragement and the Lord's love and acceptance is clear in these verses the writer takes the references to son in the proverb to be directly applicable to the Christian community. And we know that by virtue of adoption, we all possess now sonship. And sonship is 
not gender related. To speak of sonship means to have the highest position in the family. Both male and female are now included in the concept of sonship. And so the sonship motif mirrors the fact that the writer of Hebrews has called them the children of God and the quotation itself falls into two movements. The first is a twofold exhortation concerning the Lord's discipline. And the second is a rationale for listening to the word of encouragement. First, he tells us, don't make light of the Lord's di discipline. We'll talk about that more in a moment. Uh, the word is allegoreo, and it is a synonym of the word translated scorning. Don't make light of the Lord's. It means to treat something as insignificant or of very little value. Thus, the Lord's discipline or training is not to be looked down on as something worthless to us. It has great value. And so the proverb also encourages the reader not to lose heart. The rationale for taking the Lord's discipline seriously and taking courage when facing his rebuke has to do with the motive of love. The Lord does not discipline arbitrarily. But rather, it is an expression of a genuine relationship. The word rendered chastises is used in the context of parental discipline. The image is one of loving and training given to amend a person's actions and attitudes. Such training is only given to legitimate children, that is, to those whom the Lord accepts and acknowledges as his very own. And so one thing that discipline does for us in sort of a backdoor way is it validates us. It demonstrates that we belong to the family of God. It demonstrates that we are one of his children. And so take courage from that fact um, and allow that to sort of wash over you that the very fact that the Lord takes time to intervene into your life and to bring correction into your life and training into your life is a mark of validation and assurance that you are his child. Let me put it to you this way. I don't discipline other parents' children. Sometimes I want to. <laughs> Sometimes you do too. Sometimes you just want to you know, you're standing, you're waiting for them, you know, you're waiting for them to do something, and they're watching them, and they're looking at you like, I don't know, I don't have a clue. And I'm saying, I got a clue, but it's not my child. Not my child. My dad made the mistake of doing that one time in church, and it had repercussions that uh, he, he jerked a boy up one time that was giving him a, a lot of back talk, and he just gave him a little swat, and you would have thought... He cut his head off by the reaction that ensued. But it's not right. It's not right to take that prerogative on you, yourself. But, but the, the discipline of children is an acknowledgement that we are loved, that we are in the number, that we are in the family, that he, he cares about us too much to allow us to go our own way. If you can sin high-handedly, Without the discipline of the Lord occurring in your life, you ought to rethink your relationship to the Lord. 
If sin for you is something you can take pleasure in with no regret or no sense of shame or no sense of violating the relationship you have with the Lord, I would wonder whether or not you're really his child. I would have serious questions about that. Now, that is not to say that Christians can't do horrible things. They can and they have and they will. But what it deals with is if the Lord brings discipline upon the child, uh, the child will respond. And so therefore the author uh, begins his exposition of these Proverbs with the exhortation, endure hardship as discipline. And the training of the father is also a training in righteousness. So therefore he makes a connection between the Proverbs proverb and the situation of the hearers they are to recognize in their current difficulties the Lord's hand lovingly training them in right character and so the exposition then goes in three movements in Hebrews 12 7 through 8 it presents discipline as a validating mark of their relationship to God as father Next in verse 9, the writer addresses the proper response of the sons of God to the discipline of God. And then verses 10 and 11 deal with the productivity or the benefits of the Father's loving discipline. Now, the original hearers of Hebrews could have interpreted the persecution they were facing as an indication that God is not really paying much attention to their situation. In verses 7 and 8, the author of Hebrews asserts that there's no, that's nothing further from the truth than that statement. Rather, the difficulties they face are actually a sign that they are true, true children of the Father. He asks, what son is not disciplined by his father? Implying discipline is a normal part of a parent-child relationship. On the contrary, in verse 8, if a person does not experience discipline as a child, that lack of discipline is a mark of illegitimacy. Now, let me distinguish something here. When God disciplines us as children, he's not acting in the role of a judge. All the punishment that we would ever receive for sin and uh, lawlessness and iniquity and transgression, all of the punishment was absorbed by the body of Christ upon the cross. It is incorrect to say that God ever punishes me as a judge. And I'm not just using a semantical range here for the word. God never judges me because He's already judged me in His Son. Jesus has taken my punishment and God will never punish me for sin but he will discipline me as his child and the word for scourging is actually used in this text in Proverbs and to scourge sometimes means close to skinning alive God will deal with us sometimes severely as part of dealing with us but God disciplines us as Father, as Father. Now, how should we respond to the Lord's discipline? In verse 9, the author uses what is called in philosophy an a fortiori argument, an argument from the lesser to the greater. And he does it between human parents 
and God's fatherhood. And so the less important situation in verse 9 has to do with discipline given by a human father. And the author comments that human fathers are given respect in response to their discipline. And since this is the case, therefore, God deserves even more reverence. Indeed, we should submit to him as the father of our spirits and live. And the verb translated submit is hypotasso or hupotasso. And it means to yield or subordinate oneself to him. Think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there you have one of the greatest pictures of submission as he falls on his knees and he cries out, Father, if there's any way possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as your will be done. And so discipline uh, properly responded to is to be, we bow our wills to the will of the Father. Uh, as Kierkegaard used to say, we uh, all learn to will one thing. And uh, our will merges with His will. And that's what a pure heart is, by the way. A pure heart is not a sinless heart. A pure heart is not just a clean heart. A pure heart is a heart that has one motive. And the one motive of the believer is to be, I submit, I yield my will to His will. Have you ever tried to deal with a child who had never had their will broken? That does not know the meaning of the word no? Doesn't respond to boundaries or limits? Doesn't respond to verbal assault and rebuke? That's a difficult child because that child's will has never been broken. God breaks the will of his children. He breaks my will. He breaks your will. It's all part of his way of dealing with us and so the writer here is moving on and in verses 10 through 11 he rounds out his exposition of proverbs by pointing out the benefits of discipline he said our fathers that is human fathers did the best they could to discipline during the years of our childhood but the author implies their perspective was limited God, on the other hand disciplines for our good which is something done for the advantage of another Specifically, he disciplines so that we may share in his holiness. And the whole context suggests that right parental discipline involves training or instructing in right living. So the discipline of God received in the right manner trains the Christian in the right character, purifying the heart. Now, I kind of want to extend the application of that a little bit and be a little more practical, if you will allow me, for a few moments. As we look back up in verse 5, we recognize that when trouble comes into our lives, that it is part of God's fatherly care. It is part of His fatherly care. And I think the reason for that, why does, why does the writer of Hebrews change his metaphors here and goes to the idea of father? Um, I think the answer is when you're in the middle of your tragedies and when you're in the middle of your suffering, it is not very helpful to think of God merely as our coach who somehow sent this exercise into our life, but to rather think of God as our Father. This is a Father who's sending us 
or who envelops us with what is called here discipline. Now, I haven't told you what the word for discipline is. It is paideia, from which we get the word pediatrics. Pediatrics. And that's very important. What is a pediatrician? Well, a pediatrician is just concerned for the overall health and flourishing of the child. And that's really important because this word discipline does not get that across, does it? When you and I think of discipline, I mean the very English word discipline carries with it the idea of punishment. But if I'm doing paideia, if my concern is the flourishing and the good of a child, then sometimes there are going to be consequences. Sometimes there are going to be consequences. For example, if my child lies to me, the worst thing I could possibly do is not bring any consequences into that child's life. Because if that child goes on to be a liar, that child is not going to flourish. They're going to have a miserable life. No one will trust that child, and that child will trust no one. List liars don't trust other people, and no one trusts liars. So what do I have to do? I have to say, well... You can't go to Jimmy's birthday party. Let's say I have a son, and I say, you can't go to Jimmy's birthday party. And he breaks into tears, and he closes the door, and you say, well, that's just punishing him. Uh, well, it is in a sense, but padiah, or discipline, means not ret retribution, not payback, not tit for tat, it's not retributive, retributive suffering, that is, from justice. It's disciplinary suffering. This means God, as the perfect parent, will bring non-destructive design pain into a child's life, not one ounce more, not one second more, not one millimeter more than the child absolutely needs to escape lying, only for the good. That comes out smack in the middle of the verse 10 where it says our fathers disciplined us for as little as they thought best. And it's a way of saying when you look at human parenting, it's always a mixed bag. They tried their best, but let's face it, the motivations were mixed. My motivations were mixed when uh, my children disobeyed me. I have to admit that as I look back on it now. Of course, I wanted to bring consequences into their life to help them grow, but oftentimes I was mad, I was angry. And my anger wasn't rooted in anything other than you show disrespect to me, you don't say those kind of things to me, you don't do those kind of things to me and made it personal. And therefore, you get some payback. Human parenting isn't perfect, but God's is. His parenting is perfect. Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for good that we may share in his holiness. This is saying, can you see, that the sufferings and difficulties God allows into our lives are his way of getting greatness and glory very deep into our souls. Deep into our souls. And if you can't see that, verse 7 says, endure hardship as discipline. If you can't see that hardship comes into our life and that you're not going to make it, you're not going to grow, you're not going to grow, let's put it this way, let's talk about what I mean by fatherly discipline, and this is very important. There is brokenness outside of me, and there is brokenness inside of me. 
The brokenness outside of me would be things like disease or conflicts or something like racism or war or injustice or need or poverty. And then there's brokenness inside of me. There's brokenness inside of me. There's foolishness in me. There's pride in me. There's selfishness and cowardice and a lack of self-knowledge and all sorts of things in me that I'm not going to be able to make it if I don't somehow get it dealt with. God the Father, who didn't design a world filled with this evil and suffering, brings external brokenness into connection with our internal brokenness at exactly the right time and exactly the right place and exactly the right proportion to move us from blindness to self-knowledge, from cowardice to courage, uh, from a lack of self-knowledge, and all of those things that we talked about early, from selfishness to generosity. That's what he is doing in his discipline. The Bible, when you look at it one way, frankly, is just a series, an example, one after another, of God doing that with his people. Think of Joseph. He's one of a bunch of brothers. Uh, Jacob, because he made an idol out of Joseph's mother, Rachel. Uh, after Rachel died, in his grief, he made an idol out of Joseph. Joseph was his favorite son. And Jacob poisoned the family system because he was absolutely doting on Joseph, was spoiling him at an incredible level. Joseph was on his way to being an evil, proud, incredibly self-absorbed, and therefore miserable person. Well, what did God do? He uses the jealousy of Joseph's brothers to get Joseph sold into slavery. He used the lust of Potiphar's wife to get Joseph thrown into prison. He used external brokenness on the internal brokenness because in the end, Joseph becomes a very great man. A man who knows himself, a man who is wise, who has been humbled, who is strong, who knows something of his own heart, and he knows the hearts of other people, and he becomes a great man, and he ultimately saves his family, which preserves the seed of the Lord Jesus Christ who came to save you and me from the same thing. In the very end, he looks back on everything else in his life, and he says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, to his brothers, You meant it to me for evil. God meant it to me for good. That is padiah. That is discipline. That is pediatrics. Unless you see the hardships of your life as that, you're not going to make it. You are not going to make it. You're not going to make it in this world. You see, your courage and all these other graces will never grow unless you're challenged. The first, uh, by the way, there are two alternative ways of handling suffering. And th there's a Christian way of handling it and a rather common way of handling it. It is neither the stoicism of traditional and ancient cultures nor is it, in the sense of self-centeredness, the humanism of modern culture. Do you know where you see this? Take a look in verse 5. And have you forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons? My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. There they are. There are two ways that in the world, in general, depending upon your culture, 
depending upon your age, your country, your nationality, your temperament, your psychology, you're going to tend to do one of these or the other, and neither of them are the way the book of Hebrews is telling us to respond. First of all, it says, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. That would be something like stoicism. To make light means to despise. In other words, when trouble comes into your life, don't say, I'm not going to let this get to me. I am not going to let this get to me. It will pass. Just keep a stiff upper lip. That's not what the Bible's talking about. That's not endurance. Stoicism is not endurance. Let me give you an example again in child rearing. You say to your child, did you lie to me? And that child said, yes. Go to your room. You can't go to Jimmy's birthday party today. Now most children would go, no, you know, and just melt down and weep and wail and close the door. And behind the door you hear him saying, I promise I won't lie anymore. I won't lie anymore. Please let me go to the birthday party. And they go on and on and on. And that's not bad. That's good. Why is it good? Because maybe next time they won't lie. But there's another child who you might say, did you lie? Yes. Go to your room. You can't go to Jimmy's birthday party. And then there's the kind of kid who says, I didn't want to go to Jimmy's party anyway. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> I didn't want to go anyway. You're not going to win. There's a kind of kid who says to the father, you're the enemy, I'm not going to let you get to me. You are the enemy. Instead of saying lying is the enemy, I'm not going to let you get to me. I'm, I'm not going to scream, I'm not going to be unhappy. Stoicism is not the way you deal with hardship. You scream, you grieve, yeah. And on the other hand, do not lose heart. That's flipping out, that's freaking out. And that's the modern way. That's the American way. Saying no good could possibly come out of this. There can't be any good in this. There can't be a God, or I don't believe in a God who would allow evil and suffering in his world. I mean, it's just ridiculous because I can't see any reason for it. There can't be any. Well, what should we do? When these come, what should we do? First, we humble ourselves. I believe when it says receive hardship, you receive it as a child, the most important thing you can possibly do when suffering hits you is to say, all right, I'm a child. Children never, ever, ever can understand the discipline of a parent even when it is good. Sometimes we have to humble ourselves and say, Lord, I'm not able to articulate at this point what's going on in my life but I know you and I know that you love me and I know I can trust you because you've demonstrated that for me forever and so there's also the idea of what the, I've, I've told you to stand under or endure is the idea of hyperstand and that's what we do in suffering one of the things that almost everybody does instinctively when you're in the middle of suffering is you retreat. You retreat from the normal things you do that are right. You retreat from prayer. You retreat from helping other people. You retreat from reading your Bible. You retreat from your own conscience. See to it when you suffer at the very least that you don't follow your own conscience. That would be the po worst possible thing, but rather 
to keep your eyes focused upon Jesus. Now, let's talk about the benefits of discipline while we have time. Discipline is for our good. Discipline is for our good, and the good it's for is to make us holy. God needs to mold us. He needs to shape us. He needs to fashion us after the image of Christ. And there are many, many things in all of our lives that need to be cut off. Like a diamond, uh, we need facets cut. There needs to be a lot of polishing, a lot of polishing. And I remember John Newton's great hymn and poem, A Prayer Answered by the Cross. I want you to listen to this carefully. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith, love, and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Pretty good prayer, huh? "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way that almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Sounds like a godly man, doesn't it? Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. I have no idea what blasting your gourds are. When I get to heaven, I'll ask Johnny Newton, hey. I mean, I can imagine, but don't know. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried? Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? "'Tis in this way,' the Lord replied, "'I answer prayer for grace and faith.'" Be careful what you pray for. "'These inward trials I employ "'from self and pride to set you free "'and break your schemes of earthly joy "'that you may seek your all in me.'" We are not in heaven yet. We are not in heaven yet. We are going through a period of training, of suffering. The cross before the crown. Suffering before glory. Self-denial before glorification. All of those things are our present lot in life. Sometimes I think God wants to make us homesick for heaven. He, he wants to, to use things. And it, it always seems to me backwards when I analyze my own experience, just trying to be honest with you. Sometimes uh, I pray what I consider to be, you know, a really good prayer. I'm almost patting myself on the back going, wow, I don't know where that came from, but that was great. And then the answer to it is exactly the opposite <laughs> of what I just prayed for. But you have to learn to interpret your sonship and your life through the lenses of God's Word and not through the lenses of your own comfort, joy, and lifestyle. Amen. That is not what God is about. I don't think He's nearly as concerned with us being happy as we are. 
Now, that doesn't mean we don't have moments of joy. That doesn't mean he's anti-happy or that he's anti-us being fulfilled. But he'll sacrifice all of that for one thing, and that is to make you and me holy. Holy. And by the way, I know I've told you this before. Sometimes our concept of holy is really askew. Um, when I was a child, I had relatives who went to the Holiness Church. And uh, we were at some gathering in the family, and they were something like a great uncle and aunt. And uh, they were different. They were very different. Uh, the man looked pretty much like every other man, but the woman was really different. She had her hair in a bun, and she had no makeup on at all, and a very plain dress, and sort of what I would call clodbuster shoes on. I don't know what they were. No hose, you know, none of that stuff. And uh, I just remember she did not shave her legs nor other places. And I looked at that woman, you know, and as a kid you're inquisitive, and I almost just busted out and said, what? Why does she do that? So I'm in the car on the way home. I, I couldn't handle it. Another minute, I said, Dad, why does Aunt so-and-so look like that? He said, well, she goes to the holiness church, and that's what they do. I said, why? He said, well, they believe that's pleasing to God, and that, that's holiness. So in my little 10-year-old mind, anytime anybody said the word holy, that's what I thought. Do you know what holy means? Do you know what holy means? Beautiful. Drop, dead, gorgeous, beautiful. The image of God renewed in us. That's what holiness is. It is the most wonderful thing, most glorious thing, most delightful thing we could be. And yet we tend to make it something that is otherworldly at best, and this worldly, kind of strange. But God's beautification program in us is a holy person is a person who flourishes. flourishes. You don't become less human to become holy. You become more fully human. That is the image of God you were originally created to be. That's the beauty of holiness. That is the awe-inspiring notion of it. And so God, in His love for us, wants the best for us, wants to flourish, and sometimes He brings discipline into our lives. That's painful. Nobody would argue that the stuff we go through isn't painful. It really hurts. Deeply. But it brings fruit in our lives. It changes us into something more beautiful. C.S. Lewis, I believe, once said, if we ever saw a glorified saint, we would bow down and worship him on the spot. But when we share his glory, you see, one day suffering will give way to glory. And one day, we won't even be able to compare the suffering that we're now walking through to the glory that will be revealed in us. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is alive and powerful and sharp. We thank you for the message today. 
in the book of Hebrews regarding discipline. And we pray that you would encourage us with these words, that you would rebuke us, you would correct us, you would train us in righteousness, that you would cause us to see ourselves as we really are, that we might learn to interpret things that come into our life that we can't explain as things you are doing that at this point we do not understand but one day we shall know as we are known now fathers we continue to worship may we give as people who are excited about being in a relationship with you and out of love for you and because of your first love and great love for us. May we give back to you generously in Jesus' name. Amen.